Season's greetings, and welcome to the New Wild Review, Season 2, Episode 3. This is the podcast of Bird Ally X and Humboldt Wildlife Care Center. I'm your host, Monty Merrick. Um, well, so let's just talk about that for a minute. Season 2, Episode 3. Well, it is December of 2021. Season 2 is for the year of 2021, so that means this is the third episode of the year, and the last one was in March. That was a long time ago. Um... In March of 2021, we lived in a different world, according to the Wildlife Care Center. Everything, our plans were different. What we hoped to accomplish in the future was different. And what we were thought was coming up even in the immediate future was different. So uh, we're going to talk a little bit about that and also the major challenge for the next year. And a lot of you probably already know what that is because this isn't the first time it'll be mentioned. Um, Right about... right. Right about in April of last year, we realized that we were going to need to move our facility from its current location at Jacoby Creek Land Trust in Bayside to, um, well, hopefully something that we own ourselves and that we have the stability that we need and the security that we need that Humboldt Wildlife Care Center can just exist well into the future without worrying about being somebody's tenant and having landlord-tenant relationships and also um, where we can develop a facility that really suits our needs and doesn't have to answer to the constraints of being only on one quarter acre, which is um, a little fun fact. A quarter acre, which is all that we have, is not even enough space to have the uh, appropriate size fawn pen for orphaned fawns. So the need to move is really um, it's inescapable. But it also is really uh, stressful because we have at this point in time we have a, a year to do it. And that means we have a year to find a piece of land and build all new animal housing for our patients, and also in the next year continue to operate the wildlife care center. So we have to build a wildlife care center and operate the one that we already have over the next year. And this is, yeah, it's it's stressful, and I'm not going to lie that it does keep me awake at night. But I also have, um, you know, huh, decades of emergency response to show me that impossible um, tasks can be completed. And, you know, we've, I've been part of building, you know, an oil spill response in the middle of nowhere that we had to have up and running in, you know, a week. So obviously things can get done with really, you know, really fast, especially with a lot of help and a lot of support. And that is something that we're going to have to have, you know, so we'll be talking about that over and over and over again. And you're probably going to get sick and tired if you get if you um, listen at all, you will get sick and tired of me going on and on about uh, our needs. Complicating uh, matters this year, of course. Um, which many of you, you know, you may be aware of this already. Um, we've had some, you know, blog posts about this and stuff like that. But um, 
not long after the last podcast back in March, and not long after finding out that we were going to need to move our facility, I uh, was diagnosed with um, cancer. I had a tumor that I had to have removed, and uh, that came up suddenly and really threw our entire summer into a tailspin. And um, while the staff at the clinic did an awesome job of covering my absence, and I was out for quite a while. You know, I was in the hospital for three weeks in June and July, and and then chemo and radio. You know, like the long um, process of all of that. Um, so the staff did an excellent job, but it, it did uh, leave uh, us not really moving forward on uh, the move. That's certainly true. Um, but you know, a lot of things, a lot of things did happen uh, while I was out. And while I was uh, going through treatment, that were um, they're still useful and positive in a, uh, a in a lot of in, in a lot of ways. In some ways, we don't even know yet because uh, obviously we're still you know still unfolding. And but um, after years, you know, decades of being a care provider, this was the first time that I had been through a uh, as the patient you know, minus like dental cleanings and stuff like that. Um, but I was, you know, I was the patient and I was the patient for a long time. And I was, you know, basically in captivity for a long time. I was tied to a bed with wires coming out of me and attached to machines. And, you know, if I had to get up and pee, I dragged this whole long stuff around with me. And there were periods where I wasn't allowed to get up. And, you know, so I just laid in bed and it was, um, it was, quite possibly the most educational thing I've ever gone through in my life. I mean, maybe I just should say it was the most educational thing I've ever gone through. And one of the things as a patient that I was really uh, keyed into and also was paying attention, partly because I was, you know, a patient and I was trying to manage my emotional response. I didn't want to be freaking out the whole time I was in the hospital. But there's a lot of things that the hospital does in the matter of course of running a day that are actually quite stressful to the patients. And that's how I found out by being a patient, you know, there's, um, this just the sound of the hospital operating is stressful. Um, the sound of clatter in the hallways, you know, somebody drops a tray, somebody does something. And the reason I'm going into this right now, um, is because as a uh, person who, you know, manages a wildlife facility and also, um, has, you know, we, we have a strong desire to train and, you know, uh, new rehabilitators, next generation and stuff like that. And just people that are going to be working with us right now. Um, and, but mostly, and the most important thing is just to, how can we always, you know, make our patients, um, recovery more effective. And we know that stress is extremely, um, detrimental well, it's detrimental. Stress is not required to heal from oh, whatever ails you. You get hit by a car. You don't need uh, you know stress BID twice a day, whatever. Uh, you know you don't need stress 
um, on a regular basis in order to recover. In fact, you have to re- we do what we can to reduce that stress. And seeing how much stress there was just in hearing voices that I had no control over, just in you know the person in the bed next to me having the TV on that I didn't want on, you know stuff like that, like just little things that I had, you know. And obviously they would have been stressed by having the TV off when they wanted it on. So I mean, I'm not like saying, oh, this wasn't geared for me personally, but. As a caregiver, and I'm thinking about a room that has, you know, a, a robin in it and a, maybe a raccoon in a, you know, indoor house, you know, in a small, you know, small, an orphan raccoon in an incubator. And we could have all of these different patients in there and every single one of them wants us to tune that room to their needs. Anyway, going into uh, the details of, you know, stress isn't, you know, my experience of being stressed in the hospital is certainly not my uh, intent here. I'm going to stop talking about it any second now. But um, I'm not going to stop talking about what got uh, things I things that I began to understand better as a patient that I would not necessarily have understood as uh, simply as a wildlife rehabilitator doing my job every day. Um one of the things that has been happening over the past, uh, you know, um, oh, maybe three to five years has been among wildlife rehabilitators has been, you know, there's a, first of all, wildlife rehabilitation as a profession does not begin professionally, right? It begins with people in their backyards finding an animal and trying to take care of that animal. And while we really frown on that nowadays, um, people just, you know, get people just taking it upon themselves to provide care for a wild animal rather than getting the wild animal to a proper care facility. Um, that is the origin of our profession is that's what people did. People just did it. And, um, it's not going to, it's not stoppable any more than it's stoppable. that little birds will jump out of their nests or the, or that you know, that, uh, bear cubs will scamper away from their parent and have to be called back in. You know, I mean, that's just it, that's the way it happens. And, you know, no matter where we are on the timeline, you know, 3000 years from now or 2000 years ago, somebody finds a wild animal that's injured and they just try to help them. Since the beginning of the profession, though, there's been a move to professionalize, you know, by providing trainings. And that's one of, you know, I'm deeply involved in that myself. You know, Bird LIX, we develop workshops to take to conferences and whatnot to teach people so that they can, so that they have skills that they can use um, that really matter and protocols that you can lean on because there's nothing like a protocol when you don't know what to do. Um, that's, that's really, it's, you know, it's one of the most it's like it's it's your it's the only life ring you have are protocols. So developing those protocols, teaching them, I mean, that is the beginnings of a training program. But until there's an actual training program for wildlife rehabilitators in the last, as I was saying, you know, uh, maybe five years or so, um, there's been a push to have wildlife rehabilitators become registered vet techs. Um, and that seems like on the face of it, you can say that's that's sensible, right? Um, 
But, and this is one of the things that I learned while I was in the hospital. Um, registered vet techs primarily are um, helping veterinarians in surgeries. It's the main, it's that, that's, what, that's, that's mainly what being a vet tech is, is assisting a doctor in surgery. And, you know, there's, there, at a hospital, at a dog or a cat hospital, right, there's people like, you know, kennel, kennel workers who keep the animals clean. But while I was in the hospital, um, there's a lot of things that I noticed about what nurses did. Uh, first of all, nurses were my primary care providers. I saw the doctors. I saw a team of doctors at 6.30 in the morning, and they looked at me like I was a science experiment. They talked about me in the third person while I was sitting right there. Um, they were young, and they were brilliant, and they were diverse, and I appreciated them, and they did excellent work, and they took really good care of me, but they were not really involved in me as an entity having this experience, whereas the nurses 100% were. And that is, in fact, the nurses did my bandage changes, the nurses gave me my meds, the nurses took my vital signs, and my bandage changes were not simple. Um, I want to just go in and add. Um, they gave, you know, I saw the nurses every four hours. They came in and took my vitals, you know, and uh, they made sure I was comfortable. They made sure I was as happy as I could be, you know. They took care of me. And they took really good care of me. And they took my dirty dishes away when I was done eating. And that is not something that I was, that's not something. That is what made me realize that wildlife rehabilitators are not vet techs. We work with animals and vets work with animals and vet techs work with animals. But human beings are also animals. Wildlife rehabilitators are nurses. Um, we work under the direction of veterinarians. We, provide, we, we administer meds, we do bandage changes, we try to provide an environment that keeps our patients stressed down and ability to recover high. We, uh, you know, we, we do things for them to make them feel more at ease. Uh, I think that rather than seeing a push toward making all of these, uh, all of uh, wildlife rehabilitators become registered vet techs, and that, this is not to, I mean, Registered vet techs have perform a great function, and they have admirable skill sets. And I'm not. This isn't about you know denigrating that. It's just saying that as wildlife rehabilitators, that's not where we should look to find our. Very few wildlife rehabilitators help the vet in surgery. There are there are some who do, yes, but that's not many. And usually, like every facility I've ever worked in, if there's somebody who helps the vet with surgeries, that person is called on again and again because that person begins to have the skills like a registered vet tech would, right? Um, so like that's obviously necessary and it's a needful thing. So um, not knocking that, but I'm saying that for, for the field as a whole and for wildlife rehabilitators in general, a certification program or a, or a training program, I believe should be modeled more after um, nursing programs with you know, different tiered uh, results with different, you know, skill sets and greater and lesser degrees 
of autonomy when dealing with patients, you know, from an LPN all the way up to a nurse practitioner or something like that. I, you know, but in any case, that I think that that is a direction that I, I feel for myself, I'm much more interested in pursuing within the field and plan, intend to work on that and hopefully working with others, you know, in developing, a, in developing programs like these. And, you know, eventually it would be awesome if this was something that was, you know, supported at, like, say, a community college level. Um, right now, there's nothing like this. You don't go to college to become a wildlife rehabilitator, as we all know. Um, excuse me, I have a cat sitting on my notes here. You're like, you have notes? <laughs> So while I'm not about to uh, say something as absurd as everything happens for a reason, I am going to say that out of my um, health disaster of 2021, um, there are some positive things that came out of it. And I would say that um, I would, you know, my commitment to developing a nursing program for wildlife rehabilitators, I think, is one of those positive things. Just my own uh, feeling it as feeling it personally as what it means to be stressed in a hospital situation. Um, as a care provider, that's priceless information, and and I'm I'm very grateful to have it. And. Um, And I think that I have a realization of my ability to rely on the staff of the care center to get the job done when I can't be there. That is um, extremely gratifying, both from like a personal pride because it's a team I built and I love them. And it's made of, and that team is made up of people who are compassionate and passionate and committed and intelligent and funny and just great to work with. And um, it's just, you know, so all of those things that came out of my uh, really uh, poorly planned and badly timed health emergency are, uh, you know, well, let's just say they're keepers. And, um, but that does lead me to uh, just how horribly inconvenient it was. So we're going to move our facility. And we're going to operate our facility while we move our facility. We have uh, a year to get it done. And we do have help. Uh, you know, a local realtor is working pro bono to uh, find us a piece of land, hopefully donated. It's super important uh, to me, and but I think to everybody, um, that we not owe this land to anyone. You know, that the land belongs to the that it belongs to the nonprofit, which means it belongs to the people of California. By the way, um, as all of the materials of our nonprofit do. Um, and, you know, and I, and answering to the people of California on this would be a joy and a delight. And I look forward to the opportunity, but, uh, getting there is going to take, you know, it's going to take some doing, 
Um, but this doesn't mean that we're so desperate that we don't have desires and plans and a dream for it. Because the truth is, is that while the move is happening with on a timeline, it's never been on a good timeline. Finding out less than two years that we had to find land and move to it and build a facility there because, you know, some of our facility is modular, but some of it is not. And so there's a lot that we're going to have to re we're going to have to rebuild. And I was not, I was, I was nervous, like terrified of the prospect of having to move as it started to become apparent back in February and March. And, um, you seem like an existential threat really, to our facility, because finding land, building a facility, and getting moved all while, I mean, we've been, every single person on staff has been working at their capacity, um, mine has been reduced, as we've discussed, but has been at their capacity since the place opened in 1979, you know, we haven't been on that land since 1979, we've only been there since 2006, but from that, you know, no rehabilitators have extra time to build a facility while they while they work in the facility that they've already got, and so it's going to be challenging. And it certainly um, isn't the way I would have picked doing it if I were picking it, but I'm not. I mean, in a way, we all are. We're picking it. Um, you know, we had options other than moving, um, but those options uh, were worse. So we opted to move. So uh, getting it done will obviously be hard, <laughs> but you know, whatever. So it will be hard. Um, but getting what done, you know, just uh, saying, oh, move. Well, that's, you know, move where? And that is a really great question, where? Right now our location in Bayside is, you know, for the region that we cover, Humboldt Wildlife Care Center, we are essentially responsible up to the Oregon border, which is about two hours north of us, to um, northern Mendocino, say Laytonville area, which is about two hours south of us. And we get animals, depending on the species, all the way. Well, we've gotten, you know, we've gotten animals all the way from Mount Lassen. And that's like six, seven hours to the east of us. We don't get too many animals from the west of us. Um, but when they do come, they come in big piles, like, you know, a bunch of storm petrels blown in from on the wind, coming in from the ocean. Because right west of us is just the Pacific Ocean. So our location in Bayside is exactly between Arcata and Eureka. Or you could another way to say it is it's it's between um you know uh Fortuna and McKinleyville. Or you could say, you know, it's between Crescent City and Laytonville, but we're really well located. Um we're just off of the highway, but not on the highway, so we're easy to get to. Um people only have to deal with us a mile distance to get from the highway to our door. Um, we're easy to find. We have, uh, we've been there for 15 years, so it's normal. People go there. Um, 
people just show up at our door with animals. You know, they don't have to, they don't necessarily call for us. They're just like, hi, I just found this woodpecker in my front yard. And, you know, so like that's our, our recognizability in the community is really important. And so for that reason, we don't, in some ways, I don't want to move at all. In some ways, I would really, I, I wish that we could expand our facility um, right where we sit. But out of the tsunami zone would be nice, up off the, so that means, you know, out of the, uh, into a little bit higher elevation. It would also be nice to not be into elevation so far in from the coast that we are now in a fire threat. So something in between death by tsunami and death by fire. Um, that's what we're looking for. And one of the things that we are you know, like I mentioned at the very beginning, we're on a we're on a quarter acre. We lease a quarter acre. There is no place on that quarter acre that you can go and be far enough away from our patients that they don't know you're there anymore. A quarter acre is not enough land and for us to operate on, and we need uh, ideally 10 acres, two at the minimum, to allow us to, you know, grow and be more appropriately sized for at the level that we're already at. Um, right now, that's just not the case. As I mentioned, we can we don't even have room for a, a properly sized fawn pen. So um, that's something that will be great to have. You know, uh, when I was back in 2012, I was building uh, what the place that we house our raccoons, orphaned raccoons each year as we raise them. And as, and I was using materials, they were, you know, you could say they were dubious materials, but we were, they were donated and they were not in the best of shape. We had to cut, there was four by fours that we had to cut rotted sections out of and whatnot in order to make them work. And so um, we built it, we called it, and we do still call it the raccoonery. Um, love it particularly. Um, I got a chance in building it to do something that I'd always wanted to do, which was to make a fake river, very much like the Los Angeles River. And this is also like the Los Angeles River in that a whole bunch of it is concrete. In fact, in this case, all of it is concrete, and it's only 25 feet long, unlike the Los Angeles River, which is significantly longer, and not all of it is concrete. Um, but as we were building it, using these, you know, compromised materials that were donated. So uh, one of the people helping me build it um, said, so how long do you think this will last with these materials? And at the time, I was adamant that the, they only needed to last five years. If we, there's no way in the world we would still be here in five years. We'd still be on the land trust property because a quarter acre was not enough. We needed independence. We needed land. We could, if it, and we had to like start planning immediately. And of course, we instead what we did was we got immediately into making the facility we had much better, which it did need that work. Um, it we built all of the outdoor housing between. Uh, the winter of 2011-12 and 
the winter of 2013-14. So that was a huge push, and it was definitely not a push toward getting us moved to someplace else. It was making do with what we had. You know, we've always had a very tight budget. Uh, we've built a staff up little by little. Right now there are one, two, three, five, five people who uh, get paid to work there. Um, most of them are uh, very few hours a week. Uh, as they fit it in around their other schedule, their jobs that actually pay enough that they can live on. And, and then there's Lucinda, the rehab manager, and uh, the person I lean on the most, and uh, who is full-time. So, um, yeah, so we basically uh, underfunded, overworked, did not work on getting new land yet and so that was something that you know we've known this was going to have to happen that's what we face now once we let's say that we find the perfect oh, let's say it's five acres and oh let's i'll be specific it's five acres and it's only a half a mile up greenwood heights road so it's a little bit out of the tsunami zone not in the fire zone the the acreage is relatively level so that we can use most of it and we get it for a really good price because of a miracle and it's five acres did i mention that five acres so five acres and it's and it's and it's still in between Arcata and Eureka. And we get this land and the move goes well and staff under trial by fire from me being out over my health concerns this summer just does an awesome job next summer too. And, you know, those of us who are building the new facility just do just work on that and get it done. And then we tear down the old facility and we move everything over there and we open it up. And, and then what? Are we just the same old Humboldt Wildlife Care Center? Just in a new location? Well, I mean, in a way, of course. I mean, that is exactly the project, is to sustain our activity in support of our mission into the future. And we I'm proud of what we are up until this very moment. So uh, to have more of that in the future at the new location would be, that's simply awesome. And I would regard that as a uh, one heck of a one heck of a maneuver, getting it all done and having us just be ourselves now in a new location. But where we are in our location now was has not been enough, and we have always I've have always been searching for you know ways to uh, develop our facility into a proper training hospital. Since 2012, 2011, 2012, when we came into the Humboldt Wildlife Care Center and started managing it and then took it over, um, we've instituted an internship program and 60 mostly young women have passed through this program. Everybody who is currently on staff at our facility passed through this program. So that's five rehabilitators right there out of the 60. And others... One, two, three, maybe another five 
have gone on to have jobs inside of uh, California as wildlife rehabilitators um, at different points in their life. And it's that's you know, that's a fantastic um, that's a fantastic rate of getting people into the field. And it's one I want to continue and enhance and improve. And building a teaching hospital from the ground up will get, afford us the chance to incorporate things that we need that we don't have right now. So it won't be just the same old HWCC. What we'll have is, you know, we'll have a classroom where, you know, we, we try to conduct classes now. And of course, during the pandemic is that's becomes that, that that's obviously been a challenge that we haven't really, you know, as we've sort of backburnered that to a certain extent, but you know, that's, that's painful that we have. And I look forward to the day when we can uh, get this going, you know, get, get our training programs back on track. But, so building, you know, a classroom, meeting room that can allow us to, you know, uh, be separate from the hospital. Because right now where we meet and discuss things, we are 10 feet away from animal housing. It's one room in a double wide and the animals are in another room. So being able to have a separate facility on the property that is, you know, where we can meet and discuss things and have trainings and... Um, lectures and stuff like that would be, uh, you know, especially that'd be, that would definitely bring that training hospital vibe much more alive. And, and of course, what we would really like to have is, um, more than a classroom is a surgery suite for surgeries. You know, we, we send, you know, patients far away to be, uh, treated by one of the best wildlife surgeons that I know, Shannon Riggs, who is also a co-founder of Bird LAX, but um, she's not just around the corner from us. So um, it would be great to have that capacity on site. And then our interns could get that level of uh, experience as well, because right now none of our interns do anything like assistant surgeries or anything like that. Um, and it would be great to be able to provide that. See, not only would these developments be great and super cool, but they're actually needed. They're necessary. We should have them already. These are the things that we need to have in the future are things that we need to have right now. They're things that we needed in 2015. They're things that we needed in 2012. Now, our list of needs in 2011 was quite high and a classroom was kind of low on the needs. We didn't even have a place to house birds outdoors. So we were starting at a much, you know, we were starting much further back on the grid than we wanted to, but, um, but we've advanced uh, quite a bit now and now we can actually 
dream about, you know, a surgery suite and a classroom and, you know, acreage and um, a teaching hospital that is more than a good idea. So that's what we're building toward. And that is, that's the, that is the vision that, you know, I keep in my head and I've had it in my head since we got here in 2011. And I've always thought that Humboldt Wildlife Care Center was a perfect place for a person like me to wind up at because I've come from such high volume situations where we had 10,000 animals here or we had, you know, 6,000 animals a year there or oil spill emergency response where suddenly you have 2,500 animals and you're taking care of all of them or, you know, like always with these like enormous quantities and you're just like in the weeds the whole time struggling just to get the job done, let alone make advances. Although advances we did make. And, um, but I, but here at Humboldt Wildlife Care Center, I have had the opportunity on the, and at where we are, you know, on the land trust, in Bayside, on that quarter acre, I've had the opportunity to build and make and develop and find ways that we can share with other rehabilitators who are coming from even less resources than we have. They're working out of their backyards and ways that they can do things that, you know, million dollar facilities do all the time but be able to do that on no money. And it's been a, you know, so the Wildlife Care Center, besides for treating 1,500 animals a year and intervening on behalf of thousands more each year successfully quite often, um, it's been, the, the, the facility has also been a laboratory for me and for us to um, develop new techniques that we can share in workshops and, you know, presentations, or, you know, at conferences and on the internet and through our blog and through publications. And that's been, you know, that's an opportunity that I am deeply grateful to have had. And I, uh, my only regrets are over the last 10 years is that I didn't, you know, maximize the opportunity to its fullest potential at every moment that I could. Um, but, you know, we're working on it. So, you know, with that, I think I'm, well, I think I'm going to wrap this up. If you're interested in what we're doing at the Care Center, I hope that this has been an a informative update. And uh, if you have any ability to help us find land and make the move, and if you have any uh, desire to part with some of your hard-earned cash resources here at the end of the year, we are a 501c3 organization, and your contribution is, of course, tax-deductible, and uh, we could really use it. So uh, with that, I guess, I guess that's pretty much it, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to turn this one over to the closing, uh, the closing sentiments. You've been listening to New Wild Review, the podcast of Bird LAX and the Humble Wildlife Care Center. New Wild Review is produced by uh, 
the staff of Bird Ally X, for you.